Welcome to the Poetry Questions TPQ20, where we sit down with your favorite authors to talk about passions, process, pitfalls, and poetry. My name is Chris Margolin. Let's expand the conversation. Hi, Chris. How are you? Hey. I am. <laughs> How are you this morning? Are you in California or on the West Coast? No. So uh, we live in uh, just outside of Portland, Oregon. Okay. So we, yeah, we live just uh, just over the bridge into Washington, uh, into Vancouver, Washington. Very so, cool. Yeah. Yeah. So um, thank you so much for uh, for hanging out with me today on TPQ Twenty. Yeah. Um, I'm so glad to finally get to talk to you. Mm-hmm. Um, so we always like to start off by saying, um, you know, I know who you are. Our audience, mm-hmm. though, might be new to you. Um, so if you were to kind of give them, you know, maybe the bio your publicist doesn't have, uh, you know, who are you? Um, I'm someone who really loves to bake and cook. I think all of my immediate friends know that I am. Uh, I'm always obsessed with trying to feed someone. <laughs> um, what else is there to know about me that's not in the bio? Um, well, this might be in the bio, but maybe not apparent. I'm obsessed with deer, which is why my first chapbook, you know, has so much about deer in it. Um, I'm a child of immigrants, a uh, proud child of immigrants. Um, I love to bake. Archery is one of my favorite hobbies. Um, I hope to pick up sewing soon. I don't <laughs> Mango is the um, most perfect fruit that ever existed. I don't know if there's anything else to, <laughs> to that. Well, man, I am uh, I am like anaphylaxis allergic to mangoes, so uh, oh, no. I do agree with you. Though I know it's terrible, it's one of those. But I agree, it's one of the greatest fruits out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I I want to circle back to the archery part mm-hmm. of that. Um, talk to me about this uh, this archery side of you. Uh, are you uh, when did when did you get started with archery? Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, how does that help you? Uh, how how is that therapeutic to you? When did I get into archery? I think sometime around college, maybe a little bit before college, I got into it. I think I just went to an archery range one day and I was like, oh, this is cool and weird. It has absolutely nothing to do with writing. I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated. I want to get into this. And I think it's really just healthy to have hobbies that are not related to maybe the way that you move through the world. Me mostly being recognized as a writer. I really love things that are also tactile too, which I find really enjoyable. Um, and it's really just, it's just a lot of fun. I don't have to think about it so much. I don't, it doesn't really matter whether or not I'm good or perfect at it. I just enjoy it. Um, so archery is something that I really love. It's a hobby. I don't know what it's called when you like throw hatchets in a, like a room, but I want to do that too, because it looks like a lot of fun. Oh, I, you know, <laughs> Portland is like, you know, lumberjack, hipster, you know, the uh, capital <laughs> of the world here. Mm-hmm, and we have mm-hmm. so many of the act of the little ax throwing places. And okay. I've wanted to do that so bad. It sounds like so much fun. It doesn't look like so much fun uh, too. It does. It does. It yeah. also looks. Um, it looks like something maybe I don't want to know how to do so well. Uh, <laughs> it seems like a scary. It seems like a scary hobby, but I. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating. So, do you have your own bow and arrow? I don't. Um, my draw weight is. It still should be sixty pounds. It might have gone down because it's been a while. Um, I know that I want a primitive recurve bow. I don't like the technical bows that they use, like in the Olympics or what have you. Um, I just like a simple. A uh, bow. I'm about five two, so I probably want a bow a little bit shorter than me. Yes. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, that is definitely something that I am. Uh, I I had no idea about. So that's fascinating. I love mm-hmm. that about you. Um, so 
with that, uh, <laughs> I usually like to ask about passions, but passions mm-hmm. that kind of go, and you kind of started to talk about it with the archery, yeah. but what are, what are those other passions that you have that might find their way into your writing? Um, mm-hmm. You know, who, what are those things that you absolutely fall in love with uh, that, that kind of lend themselves to your style of writing or your process mm-hmm. or, or what actually finds its way into the words on the paper? Um, I'm really obsessed with wildflowers. Um, I'm always excited for spring and summer because that's when the wildflowers come back. Towards the end of summer is when they die out and then it's winter and then I'm always, when it first starts to get warm, I'm always like waiting to go out into the field and see like, oh, did the wildflowers come back after they sprung? Um, I'm obsessed with keeping things. I'm obsessed with record keeping. Um, I finally picked up journaling again after a very long time. One of my very dear, brilliant friends, who's also a poet too, Zora Satchel, they really um, uh, imprinted on me, oh, you should pick up journaling again because it'll help you kind of work through your emotional thoughts, but also maybe more importantly, it's kind of like a historical archive of your mind. So that way you can kind of go back and read them, kind of see where you were maybe a year ago, where you wanna go next. Um, and also oh, like, I, I, yeah. Oh, oh, go ahead, go ahead, I'll ask a second, yeah. go ahead. And I'm also just deeply obsessed with biblical apocrypha. I mean, my first my first full length collection, which reimagines Cain Nabal as sisters, is is in that sort of realm a lot. But I'm also very fascinated with narratives that are so that women are so integral to the center of it, though. But women are largely pushed out, and I'm fascinated with being able to rewrite the same story, recentering women again, um, feminine gaze, the girlhood, and all of those things that encompass that. Love that. That's fantastic. Is there what what got you kind of thinking about that? Because that is, uh, especially you know that idea that can enable and the things like Mm -hmm. that come with that. Like, what are what what do you think was the catalyst to that? How did that come about? Well, most poets, as you know, we always hear the thing about we always hear the phrase, the old adage, write about what you know. And I know because I grew up in the church, because I come from generations of people who were born and raised in the church. Excuse me. My um, grandmother, my paternal grandmother, went into labor with my father while, while they were in church. And my dad was born on January 1st. So he, you know, quite literally is a, uh, a child of the cloth. <laughs> he was really born into it. My, uh, my great-grandparents were deeply in the church. My grandparents were deeply in the church. My parents were deeply in the church. So it kind of seemed inevitable that my relationship to faith would be something that would always be with me, even if I was not directly practicing it. And as someone who grew up so intimately with all of these um, Old Testament fables, they felt like they felt like my childhood bedtime stories. They were the stories that I grew up with and knew so well and intimately. How I then made the leap from just knowing them, these stories as they are to reimagining them with two young girls instead of two young boys. Uh, my sister and I, when I lived in Astoria, Queens. We lived together for a time and our relationship was tumultuous to uh, (laughs) use euphemisms. Um, And I first just wrote the poems as just an outlet. I I think what I find fascinating about Kane is I don't see the character as a monster. I see the character rather a victim of circumstance, which isn't the same, which isn't to say that Cain was not fully in control of their actions. Rather, if you were raised in a kind of environment, you become a product of that environment. Um, and I felt 
a lot of parallels between me and Kane in that respect. What it means to be the eldest child, what it means to be blamed for everything, what it means to have the success of the family on your shoulders, whether or not you agreed to it. And uh, from there, it felt like a natural um, sort of connection to, to make that bridge between Kane and myself, um, Abel and my sister. And, but then also there's so little about the fable that isn't clear, right? It's not clear what kind of relationship Cain and Abel had up until Cain killed um, his brother. It's not clear what kind of relationship that Cain and Eve had or Abel and Adam had. There's so much about the fable that is not explored, which it has enough you know, foreground for me to work with, right? Whether or not you're familiar with biblical fables, but because there's such little in the story that has not been told, it gives me all of this space to sort of play and change things and add to things that I didn't know, right? Um, and then from there, um, I was like, oh no, what have I done? I wrote a book. <laughs> <laughs> That's what, what, I mean, what a brilliant way to look at things like that, that you're so intimately invested in when you're younger mm-hmm. and, and know that it, it can actually be that, you know, that metaphor, that allegory for, for your own life as well. And it's, it's yeah. a cool way to look at that. Um, and I think that's a natural way to lead into the idea of process. Um, mm-hmm. and, you know, you said you started to keep journals again. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, so I'll start with that. Did you start to keep physical journals again or have you started to keep journals on like a notes app on your phone? What, what do journals look like for you? Mm, that's a good question. With my first collection, I've been, so I started writing my first and second book at the same time because I kind of needed a break from the first book because I'm sure you know this as a writer yourself, you can get kind of tunnel vision and be stuck in a sort of project. And it's really healthy to do other stuff, right. which you may not be in the mindset of, oh, this other thing I'm doing that's not related to the book will inform the book, but it's helpful to let your mind kind of rest in between these sort of heavy um, thematically based projects. Um, but for the first book, I kept exclusively handwritten journals. I have also on my notes app, like little lines whenever I'm moving around and I have right. like a loose, um, a loose line uh, tab, just kind of open where I'll just like type in random things. It might not be, it might not become anything, but it's just good to have it. That way I can maybe just toss a line into a poem to kind of keep myself on my toes. So that way I'm not writing in a formulaic fashion, which is something that I used to do terribly when I was an undergrad, but I've been very good about growing out of that sort of uh, pattern. So I will handwrite my poems. I usually handwrite my poems on the first draft, which I understand for a lot of people is tedious, but there's something very, there's something very active and tactile about being able to touch and feel the poems, yeah. tear pages up, write on things, cross things out. It makes the work feel more alive to me. Because by the time it gets to the laptop, it feels very static and stationary to have it on the screen. Um, and there's something about making the poems feel more, um, you know, in the real world. In my living room, I have all of my poems from the book all tacked onto the wall. I'm not home right now, but <clears throat> I have them all tacked up on the wall so that way I can see how big visually the book is. Um, and because right. I'm a nerd, I called the wall the Great Wall of Thesis because it was my thesis project and I thought I was funny. That's awesome. Fantastic. (laughs) Um, But having it there also kind of helps me figure out the ordering too. I mean, obviously all poets have different processes, but to be able to have it on the wall and then also put post-its on it and say, oh, you should switch these two poems because then the first section of the book will have this kind of tone. The second section will have this kind of tone. 
Um, another thing that also is deeply important to my process is music. I have two playlists for the first book, but also it helps me, music also kind of helps me set the tone, right? So for example, um, Lupe Fiasco's Tetsuo and Youth is guided by the four seasons, right? He has four um, intermission, what well, call them intermissions, intermission uh, tracks that change yeah. the tone in between sections. And before I fully understand how to order a manuscript, that album, Tetsuo and Youth, as well as Moonchild's Voyager, were really integral to me understanding how you order, um, not even just a collection of poems or a book, but like how any um, piece of art where several parts are talking to themselves are ordered. Mm. Um, in the case of Voyager, the story is about a young woman who's tried to convince a lover. The lover has no gender, or at least the gender isn't specified, um, to change their mind and consider reciprocating their love, right? And the entire, the entire album has this very clean and succinct arc and it's, very, and it's very easy to pick up on whether or not you're musically inclined or not. And it just kind of clicked in my head, maybe more so than a craft book that, oh, wow, this is how ordering a body of work makes sense. These are how all of the parts speak to each other to become a cohesive whole. Nice. Well, that's really cool. It's a cool <laughs> way to think about it, that, that idea of kind of a chapbook as concept album. Because mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. that's kind of, you know, I mean, they, they really are. It, it should most... I, I won't want to even say it should, but a mm -hmm. lot of chapbooks, a lot of collections do tell a story. They at least have some type of theme that ties them together. And, mm -hmm. and I love that idea that you look at that like a piece of music. And you're also one of the first people I've talked to in a while that, that can listen to music with lyrics while they are writing. <laughs> um, yeah. Do you find that that ever, does that, does that ever um, find its way into what you're writing and, you know, kind of shape the piece as you're doing it or... The lyrics you, themselves? Yeah. Hmm. Uh, no, mostly because I don't want to get sued, but also because, uh, <laughs> um, but also because it kind of just, if anything, sometimes can be a jumping point. Sometimes when I like need to get myself back into the groove of writing, I'll usually have three or four books open on rotation and maybe something lightly playing in the background. Um, and that will help too. Um, with the lyrics, I think mostly Moonchild going back again. Well, Moonchild, but then also uh, Dionne Warwick. I also love listening to her. Mm. Um, Etta James also. I'm, I'm a very moody writer. <laughs> um, having the sort of uh, lyrical influences uh, really helped me kind of understand um, the internal um, emotional landscape of, of women who have walked before me, but also kind of helped me shape the emotional landscape of these two voices that I'm working with, Cain, Abel, Eve, Lilith. Um, especially since I imagine Eve and Lilith as older women, right? And I think to myself, well, what older women listen to in the kitchen while they're doing the dishes? Definitely Etta James, you know what I mean? Um, my mom was a huge fan of the Gap Band and I'm trying to figure out how to put that in, um, in a way that, feels natural. As I've been writing these Cain and Abel poems, um, the content critique I got in workshop um, was to not rewrite the Bible, but take the fable as foreground and integrate my personal life into it and let the lines blur and trust that your reader will understand what you're trying to do with both. Love it. Love it. That's fantastic. That's awesome. Um, do you find, um, 
I guess, uh, oh man, there's the moment where I lose my own question. Uh, do you <laughs> find that, <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, since there we go, um, mm-hmm. since you, you know, you are, you are at least, uh, you're fairly, you know, new into the world of poetry still, as far as, uh, you know, publishing and things like that. Mm-hmm. Do you find that there have along the way been some pitfalls that have come across, that you've come across or some roadblocks, um, you know, and are they things that you have gotten over or are you still trying to work with them? Or maybe are they, uh, are they an active part of who you are as a writer? Hmm, pitfalls. I mean, oh yeah, a few. I mean, I think I think there was something refreshing about knowing poets that I love, that I look up to, who are like light years ahead of where I am now, but where I want to be. They still deal with being rejected, which is, <laughs> on the one hand, I'm like, damn, okay, so this is forever. But also it gives me reassurance that like, I'm fine. I'm going to be fine. It's not, rejections are absolutely not the end. Um, if anything, it just kind of means that that moment wasn't for me, but there's something else. Um, for example, um, I got rejected right before I was hired on the frontier. I got rejected for a fellowship that I really, 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 really wanted. I hadn't wanted anything that badly in a long time. And I was a finalist for it too. Um, the interview went so-so. And then I got, um, this very, very kind rejection letter saying like, oh, Ms. Jones, we want you to know that you being rejected does not, you not getting the fellowship rather, excuse me doesn't mean that we don't think that you're capable. If anything, it means that like we had too many good options and we could only pick one person. And it hurts to hear that though, but then getting a rejection letter that tender and that specific, you know, people don't, I mean, you know this Chris, editors don't write that unless they mean it. And to get something like that so personalized really meant a lot. Um, I've had incidences with literary magazines where they promised to publish a poem of mine and then they never did. And then when I followed up, they just didn't, answer back and you know it's it's something that happens that's so specific you know you don't know what to do with that kind of thing um and I I just ended up taking it on the chin and kind of uh you know kept going kept publishing um I do find it a shame when that kind of thing happens it's only happened to me once um and it was a shame because I really loved the magazine but you know Circumstances happen a lot. I mean, now that I'm an editor in chief, I understand that a lot of background work, far more than I even could have foreseen, happen. Um, and sometimes things just fall through the cracks. And then the last thing I'll say is when I was in college years ago, I was in an anthology. What was the anthology titled? Oh, it was a poem. I think it was a poet. A poem is a poem no matter how tall, or a poem is a poem no matter how tall, something like that. And they published two of my poems and they edited both the poems without asking me first. And I was oh, like, no. wow, I know. And I was like, wow, I didn't think that this is something I like at the time I was just like, wow, it never occurred to me that something like this could happen. You know what I mean? Um, no. <laughs> they, that's, that's terrible. It's a, it's, it was just really, I was just really shocked that a literary magazine who took themselves seriously or an anthology series that took themselves seriously could do that without a writer's consent. Um, and I had decided to not do anything about it. One, because the poems were already published in print, so it was already done. Like, what could they do, right? Um, like, even if they pulled the magazine, it wouldn't make a difference. Um, but I think it was a good learning experience for me about how to move through uncomfortable situations, both professionally and also with grace, which is something that um, 
I don't think writers are necessarily taught directly. It's something that you either learn from a mentor or you figure it out on your own, um, that level of professionalism. But as uncomfortable as all those scenarios were, it taught me a lot about how to move with grace through those uncomfortable situations, as I said, um, but also how to pick your battles too. I could have I picked my battle with that editor who never published my poem or this other editor who published my work with, who edited my work without my consent. But also there are tons of literary magazines out there who would never do that, who pay their writers on time, who respect their writer's craft, their author's craft enough to say, hey, we wanna make these edits, please let us know if you're interested, right? Um, and those terrible experiences made me even that much more grateful for the editors who respected my work and, and praised my work and celebrated me. Um, yeah, I hope that that's a long answer to your question, but I hope that no, answers it. <laughs> but it's, it, it does, and it also, I mean, it obviously those experiences have set you up now to be editor-in-chief of one of the most recognized names in, uh, you know, in the small press, independent press world. Mm -hmm. you know, Frontier is, is a big, that's a, that's a big name. So uh, first of all, congratulations. Thank you so um, much. And, you know, what are, for this new era of Frontier, what are your goals for Frontier? I mean, where, where do you see, where do you see Frontier going? Um, nothing but up to start. <laughs> but also, uh, I'm really excited for us to launch new initiatives that will celebrate younger writers. I know that if a magazine like Frontier Poetry uh, recognized me when I was in high school or even in college, it would have really changed the course of everything, right? Um, I first, I knew about Frontier for a long time before I became editor-in-chief, but I really came to understand what Frontier was doing when I was a finalist for, uh, was it last year or two years ago? It might've been last year, I have to double check. Um, the Frontier Open, I was one of the finalists. Um, and the Frontier Open is massive. Like I knew it was massive from the outside, but now being on the other side of the fence, wow, I had no idea. So like to become a finalist <laughs> is like, is, is nuts. I mean, I don't know, you might have a better chance of winning. Um, I don't know, you might have a better chance of being struck by lightning or something. It's, it's a joke, but, um, <laughs> but like so many people from different walks, um, different journeys in their writing um, send in for this. Um, like I had my poem published next to Kim Adonisio. I was studying her in college and now we're like published together. Nothing about the world makes sense, Chris. You understand me? Right. I yes, um, that's crazy. Yeah. Um, so what I really want, I just finished hiring my new staff. I hired my new associate editor, the really amazing Jenny De La O, who also I know does Brown studies with the poetry question. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, I want to create more initiatives that will be better in better service of our readership, especially our readership who may not get enough um, attention. Um, I haven't figured fully figured out how it would work, but I would love to do something that celebrates um, young trans and non-binary writers, young trans and non-binary writers in college and high school, but also who are just starting out. I really want to do more things that um, assist folks who may otherwise not have access to everything that we're doing. Um, an example, this isn't specifically a part of Frontier, but a, large, but a part of the larger DNA umbrella of Frontier. We launched this thing called the Alt-MFA, which is meant to uh, do a lot of the same work that a traditional MFA would do, but in a sort of environment and time frame that is more um, that works better for folks, you know, some folks have kids, some folks have jobs that are inflexible 
and that all MFA is meant to work around those parts of the those parts of your life that would not allow you to just uproot your life and move to the middle of the Midwest, for example, for an MFA. Um, and I really love that both Josh and Ruben have been doing that kind of work. Um, I also really want more. This is also just like a shameless plug for people who will be listening. I really also want more poems in translation, um, poems that are translated um, in other languages into English, um, poems that toggle multiple languages in a single poem too. That's really something that I want. We do that now in Frontier, but I want to expand that a lot more. Um, and I know next year I want to do more things for black writers black writers here in america but also in the diaspora too that work is really important to me um and yeah like i said before i really want to do a lot of things for younger people though because it really makes a difference to get that kind of recognition so young like it can change a young person's life and if frontier could be a part of that i would be so honored you know i think about all of the poets that we've published before i even came on and how all of so many of them have gone on to do incredible things and to be a part of someone's um, journey and legacy of success is a profound honor that goes even beyond being an editor-in-chief, honestly. Well, they're very, very lucky to have you on board as editor-in-chief over there. Um, I'm, I'm really proud of you. I think that's fantastic. Um, they, they, you did a great job with your staff as well. I think you and Jenny are, are such you know, a force to be reckoned with in, in the literature world at large right now. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. With that said, before before we wrap up, uh, mm-hmm. what about you on the shelves? Can we find out there? Uh, where where can we find your work, and uh, what can we expect from you over the next little while uh, that we can tell everybody about? Ah, ah, so many things. I'm doing a keynote speech for a collective called the Frontiers Collective, not related to Frontier Poetry. They just happen to have similar names. Um, the 10 year anniversary of voicemail poems is happening in July and there's gonna be a great reading about it. I do not remember offhand where it's happening, but if you go to voicemail poems, all the information should be there. Um, uh, Ruth Awad uh, featured my poem, We Are Soft Between Hours on the Southern, um, the Southern Indiana Review. Um, and right now I'm just trying to finish my first link, my first full link. So if you are a, publisher who is listening to this podcast you should pick up my first book because it's very good i'm biased but i'm correct (laughs) (laughs) i'll I'll vouch i'll vouch for this one we we should should (laughs) awesome well thank you so much for hanging out with me today on tpk 20 um it's so nice to uh to actually get to talk to you finally um Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. i truly look forward to following your career and seeing where you go um and i definitely will keep an eye on frontier and your journey there as well I have Wonderful. a great have a great rest of the day. And I'll talk Thank to you so much, Rebecca. Thank Bye. you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Poetry Questions TPQ20. Please like, rate, review, and subscribe. See you next week. <laughs>